This is VOCM News Talk. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. Here's VOCM News Talk host Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone. I trust you're doing well on this uh, bright and sunny but crisp and cold winter's day. And it's uh, the sun is just at that sweet spot when you're driving westward where it's right in your eyeballs so hopefully you have your sunglasses with you i forgot mine but then the sun is lingering around a little bit longer isn't it i'm looking at brian callahan as we're talking looking him in the eye and he's just nodding at me mm-hmm, yeah um but uh, yeah uh, it's uh, still light when i'm leaving the building now which is nice for a change i have three pairs of sunglasses and i leave them all in my kitchen every day Every single day. I have, yeah, I've got a little pile in mm. the kitchen on the counter, right, ready to go. Yep. Still there. Maybe it speaks to my lack of optimism for, <laughs> <laughs> what, am I kidding myself? There's going to be sun when I get off work? Are you sun kidding? Like, oh, there's none in the sky now. What am I hoping for? Anyway. <laughs> well, Brian, you've been a busy bee today, um, and it's related to this story that uh, has been uh, taking headlines all day today. Uh, RCMP are calling it the most animal cruelty charges they've laid in a single case in mm. recent memory here in Newfoundland and Labrador, almost 50 in all, against a 48-year-old woman from the West Coast community of Heatherton. And uh, Brian Callahan, as you know, is our court reporter. He's been following the story involving uh, these charges against Michelle Young. He joins me now in studio, as you already know. So um, what's the story here? Uh, well, the history might point to what the story is, but uh, should point out, first of all, so this is 48-year-old Michelle Young. She's from Heatherton. That's about halfway between Port of Basque and, say, the Codroy Valley. Or, sorry, halfway between Stephenville and the Codroy Valley, down the southwest coast. So as you're driving towards Port of Basque. And, you know, those communities, they're Robinsons and Heatherton. So she's originally from Heatherton um, years ago. This is like eight, nine... Uh, going back to 2012, she submitted a, um, a registration, filed it to bring bison to this province back then. That was her plan. She wanted to be open a farm there, have a bison farm, import them from Alberta or Saskatchewan. And that was the pl- plan at the time. I so remember this, that. Yeah, there was a lot, a lot of talk about that. This is a you know, bison, brave thing to do. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Um, ran into financial issues with trying to pull that off. Uh, but that's, you know, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Yes. Uh, so I, sh- I say that because this goes back to April of 2022. That's when police first got a call, a complaint to visit the farm. That's 2022. Uh, that was two years ago. In between the jigs and reels then, what they found, the work that they had to do with necropsies and do a whole full... In April of 20, a year later, they laid these charges. So 44 counts of willfully causing or permitting unnecessary pain, suffering, or injury to an animal. So 44 counts, you can kind of read between the lines there. That would technically, you can make the assumption, jump the leap of uh, faith to 44 animals. And it's not surprising. That's roughly the amount. These were goats, mostly. There are other, some animals also, but um, RCMP tell me that when they got there, they found a number of goats that were dead, as well as other animals that were either had problems with their hoofs, couldn't walk, uh, were otherwise emaciated or or just uh, clearly underfed or not looked after, some level of neglect, and led to these 44 counts. That was in April of 20. 23 the charge was laid it's been working its way to the court so 
Um, Miss Young is in court this Monday doing court, but it's not her first appearance. Again, sometimes these do miss, you know, I had a couple of calls about it after other media report uh, in, in the media, and I looked at it and I went, sure. I mean, and when the RCMP say it's the most they've ever come across, like, seen in one batch, uh, you know, uh, linked to one person. We've all seen these neglect cases, Linda, unfortunately, around the Avalon Peninsula. There was one in Portugal, Coast St. Phillips. They come before the courts. There are several there now, some to one extent lesser than the other, and all of them have quite a backstory. In Michelle Young's case, she's 48 now, she clearly, and when she did media at the time, of course, it was a big story. People, everybody was kind of interested. What are you doing here? Bringing in bison. This is new. This is different. She wanted to avail of some provincial government programs and that sort of thing, but she had problems there, mostly where you know, the funding really has to be upfront if you're going to avail of, say, um, having being reimbursed. So in her case, it goes back to they wanted to see 100% of the funding that she had before they would reimburse 75% of it. You see some of this with home heating, you know, these rejigs for your houses, but a lot of it you have to pay upfront and then you get reimbursed. That was the problem here. She was trying to find a way to be able to have the financing, be able to somehow uh, finance that and have and make the investment and then see the return on the investment before anything happened. Unfortunately, you know, in 2014, it looked like it was going to happen. She had the order in. She had bought the bison, and uh, but again, couldn't get uh, the, the financing she needed to actually bring them to the province. And so it got held up and delayed and held up. In the meantime, she had money invested, and she had said several times, you know, that, you know, if it wasn't for the funding... You know, this is an effort to choose. So she finally got fed up with the province and then decided to change her tact. Bison wasn't looking like it was going to happen, so she went to goats. So several years later, she had goats, and she had goats on the land there. And uh, for um, in 2018, 2019, um, but again, even at that time, she was still trying to find the funding to expand the herd of goats she had in order to be able to make it a profitable business. So she had to have a certain amount to be able to share, and you know the fiber, you know, to make the ca- these are ga- cashmere fair fiber goats, and as well for goat meat, she had buyers lined up. But again, she went to, so knowing that she had problems with the province when it came to the bison, she decided to go through farm credit for the goats and still was having problems, having holdups with the application. Again, funding upfront was an issue. Uh, and she was in the media saying quite openly that, you know, she has bills to pay. I'm a single mom. I have two kids. Um, you know, I, I have bills to pay, but I'm not going to not feed my goats. And animal husbandry is is an expensive uh, venture. Uh, you can absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I've, I haven't done a ton of stories on these, but I see. I mean, how this happens. Uh, you know, whether it's the Newfoundland pony or people who have interest in wanting to get these things going. But when it comes to large animals, especially, you know, we're not talking cats and dogs. Uh, when it comes to agriculture and farmland and animals, uh, you know, we don't have the finest soil in the earth and climate either for farming you know so the west coast is definitely the prime area but even the climate change patterns has become a problem for everyone um so you know as i said it's not our first court appearance and again the line that you know i'm not going to not feed my goats but i have to pay my bills maybe a portend maybe even you know suggesting now i haven't seen any of the facts of this case but she had warned at a time that financing was a problem and you know she had bills to pay but she wasn't going to feed not feed her goats well maybe it came to the point where she couldn't feed her goats we don't know but we do know that the rcmp are saying definitively that they found dead goats and other animals on the farm that were in hard shape and so that's where these uh charges came from um once again 
50, 44, as you said, and uh, due in court on Stephenville. Now, this will be held. Her next appearance is due in Stephenville on Monday at 9.30. The RCMP feels she may be entering pleas then. We don't know for sure. Until the case gets in court, anything could happen to it. So we don't know for sure. But uh, I'll be attending that one just to see where the case goes from there. Are there any difficulties for someone like you to uh, cover court when it happens to be in Stephenville and you're located here in St. Charles? There are if they're happening. The problem is knowing, as I just alluded to, knowing exactly when a case is going to be called. So for provincial court, you know, at 930, they say 930. That's when court starts. That's when your uh, court date might be. But 930 goes right up to 11 a.m. And then there's the 11 a.m. Uh, uh, matters that have been held over and they're another serious level they've gotten to another point so the 930s could be 1045 depending on who your lawyer is if you have a senior lawyer and it's a it's that's the way it goes it's a pecking order you know the senior crown go first so if you're represented by a lawyer who's had more time before the bar than another lawyer he's going first and you're in and out but uh, and if you're on duty counsel then you're probably lower on the wrong because you don't have your own lawyer you're seeking legal aid and the duty counsel that's there it's basically first come first serve they'll stand up in front of the court at the beginning and they'll say if you don't have a lawyer come see me now or else you'll be waiting a long time so cases can go on at the same time when it's in different places like Stephenville uh, you have to call in and hope really that it's going to be called at a time that you're available because um, on Mondays <laughs> I'm not on I'm off on Mondays then did I mention that so you'll be calling in on Monday morning <laughs> there you go well thanks for that <laughs> no I do um, I will be calling on Monday because it's pretty easy to do courts are great but if you have a conflict with another court here yeah it's just uh, luck of the draw and you hope that the timing works out and some people may wonder why RCMP are involved but uh, with the changes to the animal protection laws a few years ago they're the lead instead of let's say the SPCA or Humane yep. Services or whatever the case may be the police are the lead and then you know whatever the case may be the animals get yeah and they'll wait for the see the outcome of that basing on whether or not they think they can proceed with any kind of additional fines or anything like that yep and RCMP, of course, because it's rural. Yeah. So um, um, do we know anything about these animals now? If any, like the ones that survived, they were rehomed? Or? Some were rehomed. I mean, being able to find out exactly what state. Some were re, were taken in by the provincial government, uh, the agriculture department, and were being looked after as best they could. I mean, getting into the state of every different animal and whether or not it's progressed, whether or not it survived or not. Uh, that kind of fact will definitely be covered in any kind of facts that eventually come out in a court, whether that's an agreed statement of facts, whether she pleads out, whether Miss Young pleads out, whether she fights it in a trial, it will come out then, the evidence, uh, all of the animals that were on the farm at the time who, that were seized, dead or alive, uh, their, their state, individual state, I'm sure would be a point of uh, detail when it comes to evidence. Brian Callahan, I really appreciate this. Thank you very much. Anytime, Linda. Oops. Anytime, Linda. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to be giving us a, another update on a case you've, you're following very closely tomorrow morning. So we'll stay tuned for that on the VOCM Morning Show. Keep you hanging. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, thank you, Brian Callahan. Well, when we come back, an update is coming tomorrow on the Canning Bridge in Marystown. This is News Talk on VOCM. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. 
We are back. Well, an update is coming tomorrow on the Canning Bridge, the main span linking Creston North and South, which has been closed to traffic for nearly a year. Minister John Abbott will be in Marystown tomorrow morning along with MHA Paul Pike for the announcement at the town hall. Also there will be Mayor Brian Keating, and I reached him in his office uh, just a short while ago. Well, good afternoon, Brian Keating. Good afternoon, Linda. How are things in Marystown today? Uh, well, we're exciting. Uh, we're a little excited today because it looks like we're going to get our uh, finally get our report on the progress of the Canning Bridge, and the Minister Abbott is coming to town tonight with a uh, explanation of good news for tomorrow. Well, that's it. I mean, it's almost a year now since the Canning Bridge was closed. What kind of an impact has that had on the town? Well, it's, 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 the obvious thing is that it's the financial impact as uh, one of the biggest things that's had on the town, you know, with the, the rerouting having to go up to the causeway and that, and with the low income and the, all the business being located on the north side of uh, Marystown, which means the most populated area on the south side and Little Bay areas where the biggest population is, has to travel to the north side for everything, for groceries, doctor's appointments, uh, everything from a fast food joint to a uh, gas station is all located on the north side. So it's a, a big financial impact and an emotional impact as well because uh, you got to realize there's a lot of family members don't get to see their family so often because they can't afford uh, that extra $20 worth of gas a day to go visit family or uh, actually one of the seniors' homes is on the south side so any family members on the north side actually also has uh, an inconvenience. So emotionally and physically, uh, you know, it's a uh, strain on the whole whole residents of Marystown and the Beyond Peninsula, actually, because there's, there's people that uh, the Marystown is the hub, as you're quite aware. Uh, so a lot of people has to travel. Now, come from Bjorn St. Lawrence, you can come down the back highway, but uh, if they got business over on the north side and south side, you still got to make that loop. So it's, uh, it's a big inconvenience and a big burden to the town of Marystown, for sure. So it's been a year now. Are you satisfied with the timelines? Because uh, when when it was first announced that the bridge was closing, I think the timeline they were looking at for replacement was, uh, and I'm going from memory now, three years. Was that right? Well, and when they done their presentation at the Motel Mortier Convention Center in Marystown, they, uh, they had a couple of scenarios. And uh, the new scenarios was that by construction to be completed at the end of 2026. So right now we're hoping that that's the same outcome tomorrow, uh, even though it seems to be uh, several months later. Are we a little disappointed in the timeline? Sure, you know, everybody wants to right away mentality, but uh, we know the studies had to be done. We want to make sure this is right. It's the best uh, scenario for the time, be it a matching of a Bailey Bridge or a matching of a permanent bridge or a matching of a boat. We're not sure what the announcement is going to be tomorrow, but one thing that we are quite confident that is a very, very expensive and inconvenience to the residents of Marystown. How long is the Canning Bridge? Uh, he's three, over 300 feet. So it's fairly long. It's, yeah, it's a fairly large uh, bridge for sure. Uh, you know, and right now we got a causeway up there that's uh, located a, a round trip is about 25 kilometers plus to go around. So it's a, it is a, an expense. It's a time delay. It's a, it got a very big uh, impact on the town overall, but it was also the main artery. Mary's town was built along, believe it or not, around the Canning Bridge because the causeway wasn't actually even put in service until 1989. So 
so, you know, it was the artery. And it's like anything. When you take an artery, it would help your town die, wasn't it? So we needed back to survive. Could this have been foreseen? Could it have been avoided? Well, I never like to point fingers, but, you know, after the inspections and stuff, we're all baffled that it went from uh, being operational to be cut to 10 ton to 8 ton and then eliminated any uh, motorized traffic in less than a week. So, yeah, it was, uh, you know, I don't blame, I don't point blame at any, but it's definitely the due diligence was definitely dropped somewhere along the line. So, yeah, uh, there should have been more. And there's a lot more bridges like it in Newfoundland, Labrador. There's causeways that there. I think that they do have to revisit uh, the engineering field and the bridge inspections all over Newfoundland, Labrador. So we don't know exactly what's being announced uh, tomorrow, but uh, it's got to be welcome news for the people of Marystown who have waited now for a year for something. Well, definitely. And, uh, you know, uh, of course, you know, there was a couple of delays. One was a weather delay and one there was a dead of one of the one of the greatest MHAs, in my opinion, uh, um, Mr. Bragg. You know, so, you know, things do happen, but uh, we're in uh, our wait mode and our patience is probably hit for a better terminology ran out. And but uh, I will I will say that uh, Minister Abbott and his department has been keeping close contact with us and uh giving us updates as fast as he could. And, you know, when you're hiring out contractors and engineering firms and then being the mayor's time, municipal government, provincial governments don't move at lightning speed. It's more of a stale snail speed. But if Minister Abbott comes out tomorrow and he announces the bridge and gives us a schedule and the government holds to it, uh, that will be welcome news for all the residents on mayor's time for sure. Brian Keating, I do appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You have a great day. And Brian Keating, of course, is the mayor of Marystown. An update coming tomorrow on the Canning Bridge. Almost a year uh, to the date since it was closed to traffic. Uh, and the people of Marystown uh, more than anxious to get word on uh, if and or when uh, they'll be able to uh, cross from Creston North to South uh, once again. So uh, we'll be watching that one very closely tomorrow. That's coming uh, 10 o'clock tomorrow morning at the Marystown Town Hall. And uh, we... um We'll give you all the news on that. Well, lawyers for five players from Canada's 2018 junior World Junior Hockey team say their clients will plead not guilty to charges stemming from an alleged group sexual assault in a London, Ontario hotel room. Calgary Flames forward Dylan Dubé, uh, Philadelphia Flyers goaltender, goaltender, sorry, Carter Hart, New Jersey Devils forward Michael McLeod and defenseman Cal Foote have arranged to surrender to police. Former Ottawa Senators forward Alex Formenton, who has been playing in Switzerland, surrendered to police on Sunday and has been formally charged. The sexual assault allegedly occurred following a Hockey Canada gala honoring the players for winning the World Junior Tournament. It was a uh, sort of a golf type of event uh, during the summer months in uh, 2018 uh, and it is a story that uh, all of Canada watching very closely indeed um, and uh, we are also watching um, do you pay any attention to the Grammys Claudette uh, not really no I know Trevor Noah is hosting and he's quite nervous about it <laughs> even though he is really good but 
Yeah. You know, he he came like to see his trajectory is really quite amazing. He, you know, he did stand up for years and years and years, kind of under the radar, but still appreciated for those who knew his work. And then all of a sudden, boom, boom, he's got a late night show and all the rest of it and hosting things like the Grammys is quite amazing to watch. I would say it's a really difficult job to do that kind of humor, um, especially if, you know, there are certain things in the news that or in entertainment news that it's obvious that you need to make fun of, but then you can't step on people's toes because mm-hmm. of who they are. It's a different, yeah, it's a I, different I don't know how, feel. who would have, make all the decisions, like how many people would be under him to help him along to create that monologue yeah. or, you know, or his over work. him to make sure he's within well, a certain yeah. whatever. And, and then what happens if people go rogue? I don't, I don't know. To me, that's a huge, huge responsibility. I wouldn't wish that, but he says it's very satisfying to do. And we've seen in the past when hosts have bungled it ridiculously if you know what I mean that's always like one of the things people watch not just the people who win the awards but they're watching the host to see if they you know knock it out of the park or if they're just lame yeah so I'd like I my gosh I'm actually turning red for (laughs) because it's a it's a, a big responsibility and also it can be embarrassing for somebody if you don't make somebody laugh and that's your job uh and then you end up offending people and then nowadays with all of the memes that are going around you're just like a little clip that can go viral at any point so yeah i think there's a lot of pressure um and now i'm sure the compensation makes up for all right yeah (laughs) (laughs) he can pay somebody to deal with all of that the problems that come after that (laughs) yeah for sure um but yeah no uh i i don't envy anybody that job um but uh yeah you're right It, it is a lot of pressure for sure Anyway, I guess we'll be watching to see how he does. Oh, <laughs> yes, we're going to add to the pressure. That's uh, <laughs> this Sunday night. I'm not a big awards yeah, uh, show person. I'm uh, not either, to be honest. I like watching the highlights after when certain things happen and then they share the clips. I'm yeah. all about that. But to sit through it, no. Uh, and I like the human moments when there's the occasional real human moment mm-hmm. when you get a sense of, because, you know, all of these people are actors, so they act and they're not showing you who they really are. But when you see who they really are, I always find that. The humanity part way of it, much, yeah. Way more interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, there you go. When we come back, uh, the federal government provided an update today on the Canadian Dental Care Program. We'll hear more about that right after this. This is News Talk on VOCM. Saturday morning. Join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. We are back. Well, the federal government provided an update today on the Canadian Dental Care Program. Health Minister Mark Holland was joined by Citizen Services Minister Terry Beach, Labour Minister Seamus O'Regan and others in Ottawa this afternoon for an update on the multi-billion dollar program. Here's some of what they had to say. Uh, I'm excited to announce today that the Canadian Dental Care Plan uh, is now open for those uh, between the age of 72 and 76, which means that uh, all Canadians age 72 and older are now eligible uh, to apply for the Canadian Dental Care Program. And we can also share at this point in time uh, that uh, more than 400,000 Canadians have uh, signed up. These are Canadian seniors who have uh, signed up. uh, And so that registration process is going to be going extremely well. I'm 
excited to be joined by my other colleagues uh, who are going to be speaking to that in a little bit. Uh, but I, I just want to take a moment um, to say to Canadians as they receive this letter, as uh, they receive their letters, uh, wait for your letters, as Terry will say, uh, and then register, uh, that this is an area uh, really essential for preventative health. Uh, when we think about oral health care, we think about uh, having a happy smile and what that means to our self-esteem and our ability to be in the world. Uh, but we also know that it's absolutely essential in the prevention of cardiovascular disease, dementia, uh, uh, and other uh, maladies, including cancer. Uh, so uh, making sure that folks have access to strong oral health uh, is essential, and we know that one-third of Canadians don't currently. Uh, so having uh, making sure that we can close that means that up to 9 million Canadians will have access to the oral health care uh, that they need. Uh, and I'll remind folks that uh, this is uh, a plan uh, with no copay uh, for those who are earning $70,000 and under, and there are copays uh, between seventy and 90000 So we look forward to giving more updates on the program. I know there'll be a lot of questions around providers. Those details are in the final stages of being negotiated. Uh, but at this time, it's my pleasure to turn it over to my colleague, uh, Minister Beach. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Uh, hello, everyone. Bonjour à tous. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here today to provide an update. Uh, I wanted to take a moment to remind Canadians that this is literally the largest rollout of any benefit in Canadian history. We're expecting over 9 million Canadians to be eligible. Uh, I want to thank Canadians for embracing the phased approach. So far, things are going very well and according to plan. Uh, as uh, my colleague, the Minister of Health, just stated, uh, I look at my dental dashboard every morning to kind of see what's going on. Uh, my latest number is 408,000. We're averaging about 20,000 new individuals that are signing up each and every day. We've had peak periods of over 30,000 people that have registered. We've sent out about half of the 4.1 million letters that we're utilizing to invite uh, seniors as we go through these phases. Um, a quick reminder for individuals, when you get your letter, um, follow the instructions that are on the letter. And I want to thank Service Canada, who took a lot of time to quality test the letters, the IVR system, the entire enrollment process to make sure that it was easy and customer focused. Um, what you'll do is you'll call the letter, you'll need the uh, password that is on the letter, you'll also need your SIN number. Um, if you have any problems throughout the enrollment process, you'll actually be transferred into a call centre. As of right now, we're averaging call centre wait times of less than a couple of seconds. So, so far it's going very well. Uh, we're looking forward to having more people uh, enroll and uh, we're one step closer to making sure that over 9 million Canadians have access to the dental care that they deserve. And I'll pass it on to my colleague. Merci, Terry. Uh, merci, Terry. Ce programme fait une énorme différence dans la vie des aînés. It's huge. This is one of the biggest improvements we've seen to the Canadian healthcare system in decades. More than 400,000 people who do not have dental coverage just two months ago are going to be able to see a dentist. 400,000 people will now be on a plan, the Canadian Dental Care Plan. They can book appointments to get their teeth cleaned, to have a cavity filled, to get new dentures. I have to say it's about more than just the medical coverage and dental care as well. This is substantially about dignity. It is about dignity for millions of seniors in this country. So we are starting this phased approach with seniors. Seniors 76 and up have already
already gotten their letters. So tomorrow, letters are going out to potentially eligible seniors aged 72 and up. Then in March, Service Canada is going to send letters to seniors aged 70 to 71, inviting them to apply. In May, an online application process will be open for all eligible seniors 65 and up. In June, it is open for seniors with a valid disability tax credit certificate and children under the age of 18. And everyone else who's eligible can apply online starting in 2025. This is going to get up to 9 million people in this country. It's going to get them the dental care that they need. Out from this program coming into effect, and dentists still don't know how it will work, how they sign up, how, the, how much they'll be paid. How do you expect to have this program ready in a matter of months when dentists have no information at this point? Uh, so we, we know how important it is to work with dental associations, and I have been engaged uh, directly with dental associations from across the country as of our officials, uh, having extremely detailed meetings. Uh, and they've done a great job representing dentists across the country. Uh, we're nearing the end of those uh, discussions. I think they've been incredibly fruitful. Uh, and at the core, we want to make sure that dentists are treated fairly, uh, that they have, uh, they, they're fairly remunerated for their services, uh, that they have clarity in terms of how that process works. And also, we want to make sure that the folks uh, that are, are going in, oftentimes for the first time, there's folks who've never gone to a dentist before in their life, uh, that that process be as seamless as possible. We need to remove all barriers. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's some difficulties and challenges in some of those conversations, uh, but we're ready uh, imminently to be able to share information uh, with, uh, with all providers, with all dentists, but it was really important that we work through those issues with the associations over the last little while, uh, and we'll be able to talk about the fruits of those negotiations very soon. So that is uh, Federal Health Minister Mark Holland uh, announcing that they are um, uh, broadening the eligibility or, or opening up the eligibility, the uh, application process for uh, those 72 and up. Uh, it was al already a 75 and up. 400,000 Canadians have already signed up for the National Dental Care Program, and they're asking people to uh, wait to get their letters in the mail before they register. But there's a big concern here, and he uh, was uh, the question was put to him there at, towards the end. There's a big question here about uh, how, I mean, it's one thing to register and to have a program in place. It's a whole other thing to actually get the service. And uh, dentists across Canada have been asking some pretty serious questions about how are we going to get compensated? What about um, the uh, extra administrative costs that it's going to take for us to do the appropriate paperwork and uh, take care and administer all of these extra patients all of a sudden? Are there enough trained dentists and dental assistants across Canada to meet this sudden surge in need? And uh, while many people laud the whole idea of a, uh, a dental program that will get more people sitting down in the dentist chair and having their teeth attended to, um, many of whom simply can't afford to do so, um, the, the big question is on an administrative level here, how is it actually going to work and will dentists be satisfied with what is being presented? So uh, Mark Holland there outlining how uh, some of those conversations, he admits, have been very difficult and he expects to have more information to release on that side of things very 
very soon. 400,000 people already registered. That's uh, quite amazing. They expect that up to 9 million Canadians will be eligible. And uh, during the course of this process already, up to 20,000 new patients have been signing up every day for uh, as they become eligible. So that's uh, really quite extraordinary. Anyway, if you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. Well, coming up, secrecy and foreign interference in the Canadian electoral system. We'll hear from the former director of Canada's spy agency, Rick Fenn, when we come back after the break. This is News Talk on VOCM. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. We are back. Well, the former director of Canada's spy agency, CSIS, says greater openness and transparency is needed when it comes to the investigation of foreign interference in the Canadian democratic process. Richard Fadden participated in a panel examining the public disclosure of classified information and intelligence during the first week of the public inquiry into foreign interference in federal electoral processes and democratic institutions. That's a mouthful. The inquiry was called amid questions and concerns surrounding foreign interference in the 2019 and the 2021 federal elections. And there are some concerns here that uh, Russia and perhaps China and other countries may have been meddling there. Well, here's some of what Fadden had to say today. In a democracy absent clear constitutional or legal direction to the contrary, openness and transparency is the default And I can remember that I, we often used as an example uh, the old Soviet Union where everything was classified unless there was a clear, clear indication that it could be made public and that the reverse was true in Canada, that everything was open unless there was clear direction that it had to be kept classified. Um, I can't say that that particular perspective was shared by everybody, but it sort of captured, I think, the distinction between ourselves and our adversaries. I think we have to acknowledge that the law pushes both sides. For example, the Security of Information Act pushes towards protection, and the Access to Information Act pushes towards openness. But my, my first key point is that all laws and policies are very susceptible to both bureaucratic and institutional and personal interpretation. Uh, the commissioner wouldn't have her full-time job if that's not true. I mean, we interpret at all levels within the bureaucracy, within the judiciary, and this has an impact on what people do with the laws and the policies. And I think this is important because these interpretations over time result in the creation of a culture which can and does become as determinative of what's released as the actual law and, and policies. So CSIS or GAC or CSE each develop a broad approach to classifying, declassifying and releasing information that is unique to that institution. Approaches which also, as John and Al have pointed out, are also guided by third party counterparts. And if you have a number of institutions that have contributed to a particular piece of intelligence, almost always the default is to classify to the highest level sought by any given institution. It's very rarely that you end up with the lowest common denominator or the lowest common classification. So with the possible exception of PCO, the agencies we are mostly concerned about have 
closed personnel systems, which I think reinforces this culture. And by closed personnel system, I mean you join CSIS as a boy or girl spy and you want to become the director. You join CSE as a cryptologist and you want to become the chief. And that really results in a culture that's very, very, very strong. Just say a couple of words about PCO, um, which stands at some distance from other departments and agencies, both in terms of working for the prime minister, but also in the national security area, they have distance, which is something that departments and agencies don't have. And it's like anybody who works in a specialized area. You concentrate it long enough, hard enough, and you, you develop this sort of closed world view of what you're doing, including decisions to classify or declassify. PCO can be very helpful having all the clearances and whatnot when something is important enough, they ideally uh, are able to take a broader perspective. Certainly when I was NSA, that's, that was required of us on a few occasions. You then negotiate with the departments and you point out that there's often or sometimes a broader perspective and that can be seen by individual departments and agency. So I'm not suggesting, uh, you know, a conscious desire on the part of agencies to disregard my default position, but rather a conscious effort to legitimately protect information. And the balance there is, is, is I think, clearly in, in favor of protection. Uh, I think over time, the protective culture becomes dominant. And this actually sits well with ministers and central agencies and senior officials, especially when the protective effect, the practical effect, is reducing the likelihood of controversy. I'm not suggesting that controversy or partisanship very often plays a role, but if by happenstance you're invoking protection under particular legal provision, means that you're not releasing something that would call all sorts of controversy, there's nobody in the system that points in the opposite direction. And I'll come to this in a minute, but um, there's no openness advocate in the entire system because the Access to Information Commissioner doesn't play on these highly classified matters. So everybody sort of goes in with the expectation that they're, they're, they're maintaining an appropriate balance. And if I'm correct, the balance is sometimes tilted in favor of protection because of the culture that I, that I talked about. And it often means that very, very quick decisions are taken because you have the volume of material uh, and you have a culture that indicates that you're going in a, particular uh, in a particular direction with respect to classification. This is also true when you're getting information or intelligence from the same source, the same methodology, or you're producing the same kinds of reports. And it might be interesting for you to ask to what extent my successors use algorithms as opposed to the human brain to discern classifications. I think that given the volume today, very, very frequently, everything's produced electronically. So why not introduce an algorithm that classifies, which can be reviewed if appropriate or necessary by human beings. But I suspect that in a lot of cases, the algorithm um, wins. And I think in this system, it's important to note too that appeals outside, this, outside the system, they're difficult, they're lengthy, and they're expensive. So if you can't get somebody within the system to respond to a request for declassification, it's, uh, it's very difficult to, to uh, get otherwise. So 
my, my, my central point is that while much of the information that you will be interested in deserves protection, and John and Al have pointed out a good number of reasons why, the culture, the workload, and the tradition in agencies, I think, is to tend towards overprotection. Not always the case, but it's, it's frequently the case. So he was uh, trying to give a little bit of uh, an overview, I suppose, as the former director of CSIS as to uh, why there is this uh, tendency towards overprotection of information. Because the big question that is being asked now leading into this uh, inquiry is who knew what when and, um, and uh, you know, what to what extent the public needs to know those kinds of things um, if you are being manipulated or if uh, there is a direct interference in the way in which a government uh, ends up getting um, elected or not elected or a particular um, a member gets elected or not elected uh, is very concerning in a democracy like Canada and other places. And one would wonder why uh, foreign countries would be so interested in Canada. But on the global scene, although we aren't, you know, the, one of the biggest players, we, our voice is uh, generally respected when it comes to, um, you know, uh, decisions that are made on a global level. So uh, very interesting indeed. And, you know, uh, I would imagine that a lot of people are going to be watching this inquiry just to see uh, to what extent uh, foreign players had been meddling in the electoral process and how. That is so scary. It is. It, it is. It really is. The implications are just absolutely terrible, as we've seen in before in the news, all the different news stories and what happened. Tragic, actually. So a lot is weighing in on this. Uh, for sure. And, uh, you know, to what uh, what methods are being used and all of those kinds of things. I think we all know um, how um, things like uh, social media can be manipulated and other ways to, I guess, influence the hearts and minds well, of deep ordinary fake persons. Videos. Like, uh, I was blown away with how real these can I remember a news story on just showing a news story that was deep faked. Yeah. And, I mean, unless you're really paying attention, you can easily, I mean, and, and that's what they're banking on, right? If it's just real enough to believe, then you are affecting your mindset and perhaps affecting the way you're going to vote. Yep, yep. And uh, and feeding you the same kind of things or reinforcing. Yeah, with the uh, algorithms. An opinion, Interesting. An opinion. Uh, an opinion. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, I can't speak. Um, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's very alarming. And um, and then there's not just a misinformation. It's disinformation. It's actual made up nonsense to get you going and to make you react in an emotional way. And these are important things that we have to be aware of. It makes us all uh, just that much more vigilant. Uh, I see Sarah Strickland racing around with paper in her hand. That usually means get this on. A couple of mi uh, missing dogs that are running around Kent's Pond right now. There's two black labs running around Kent's Pond. Let's hope that they're going to get safe, and uh, especially because that's a busy area. Is there? That's just some, uh, an observation someone yeah, made, two, or is it? Yeah, not. Well, just people are noticing that there are two black labs that are running around Kent's Pond okay, right now. Okay, so, so if you went for a walk earlier today, or you're on a walk right now. And you're wondering 
Yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, it would be a good idea because it happened to me when I was on a walk recently and uh, one of my friends happened to get this dog. She noticed a dog with a leash going um, just completely lost. And so, you know, you take your leash and you hopefully find the owner. So hopefully somebody has an extra leash. At least get them out of the traffic anyway. For sure. And, uh, you know, um, it's cold out there, so they're probably going to want to be back home. It's so, you know, it's so easy. I just hope that people take a picture and put it on social media because I find that um, that would be really helpful for the owners. And be careful if you're driving in the area and they happen to dart out. Oh, if there's two so of them hard. and they're fooling around and, They're you know, not paying attention. They're like moose, and They're right? like youngsters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, just be careful uh, driving around that area. And if they're your dogs, that's where they're too, running around Kent's Pond having a ball. Uh, so that's it for us for today. I hope uh, you're all going to have a good commute home on this uh, crisp clear day. Last day in January. I'm only realizing it now. Where is January gone? I know. Like that. It seems like yesterday we were talking about putting away the Christmas tree. (laughs) (laughs) Did I say that? Is it gone yet? Oh, the tree is, but the wreaths are still on my (laughs) dining table. I'll do that now at some point the weekend. (laughs) Oh, um, yeah. yeah, You can trip me up on the way out if you want. (laughs) Feel free. Um, All right. Well, I'm good. Glad to hear that you're on top of it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we'll be back tomorrow. If you haven't got your tree down yet, maybe it's the time to get to it. Uh, Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back tomorrow in February.